The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world in America. The rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. Whether you were in grade school or an adult who drove the grade schooler to the movie, chances are there's a sharp memory of the moment when you first met the Cars Gang. Mater, Doc Hudson, Sally Carrera, Chick Hicks, and of course... Oh yeah, the night means ready. Released in theaters in 2006 by Pixar Animation, Cars just celebrated its 15th year since that opening night. Cars? At 15? It can't be. So say the five-year-olds who just turned 20. Cars wasn't just cultural, it was transformational, creating car lovers out of kids and turning car-loving adults back into kids. And although it lost the Oscar that year to Happy Feet, its relevance has roared away at 180 miles an hour. The stories, after all, were captivating. The characters, adorable. The cast was rich with car lovers and celebrities alike. Michael Schumacher's voice appeared in the film. So did the voices of Lewis Hamilton, Mario Andretti, Paul Newman, and Richard Petty. You know, just being in the movies is something different, but being in something like the Cars movie, uh, the first one was really a great success and stuff, and probably more people know me, uh, especially kids, know me uh, as Mr. The King. Don't know I ever drove a race car or nothing. They see me in the movies, so... They think it's a big deal, and it's a big deal to us. Hey, Lightning, good race today, man. The film was directed by car lover John Lasseter, but the automotive details and cues, those small differences that made the film so realistic, came from the mind of car guys, true car guys, like creative director Jay Ward, who happened to provide unique facets to the film's production early on, so much so that the director called on him for additional automotive experience that only a handful of people truly knew. Jay had started as a production assistant on Monsters, Inc. and was one of the first production people on Cars. He soon became critical, a car sultant, he was called. And he's gone on to become the Cars creative director and legacy guardian, in addition to creative director of franchise at Pixar. And what a franchise. The real star power was in the spinoffs that it helped create. The success of Cars launched a multimedia franchise and a series of two sequels and two spinoffs produced by Disney Toon Studios, starting with Cars 2 in 2011. A video game came, and Disney eventually created a Cars theater inside its Florida theme park. The legacy lives on, thanks to Jay. It left an unmistakable mark on culture globally, and it may have even saved Route 66. For Jay, it's a labor of love on a subject he can't get enough of. He's a hot rodder, a collector of unique cars, a motorcycle guy, and a Bonneville speed guy. His work has provided him the opportunity to rub elbows with enthusiasts and industry influencers around the globe, even leading to a recurring role as a Pebble Beach Concord judge. And for a guy who began his Pixar career back in late 1998, he's considered the guardian of the Cars franchise. He's my guest today. I'm Jay Ward, and this is Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. Well, Jay, what a pleasure to have you. Welcome to Cars and Culture. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. You've gone on to become the Cars Creative Director and something that I think most people would aspire to, the title of Legacy Guardian, in addition to, of course, being Creative Director of Franchise at Pixar. How does one get such a title, and what does it mean? It is 
it's funny because it is sort of a made up title. Um, pretty much at our studio, we, we're not really big on titles. We don't have a lot of hierarchy. You know, people do have job titles, but they don't make a big deal about my title, VP, EVP, SVP. That's not so important there. Um, basically, I was in production for the first 10 years of my career at Pixar. And one of the films I worked on was Cars. And because I had a lot of automotive knowledge, I lent that to the movie Cars and the director basically said, look, you know a lot about cars. I feel like you should be maintaining cars as a brand uh, as, as it keeps getting bigger and bigger as a franchise. And so I basically kind of wrote my own job description of what it would be like to oversee cars full time as a job, theme parks, games, publishing, um, marketing activations, um, you know, anywhere that cars was represented around the world, I would make sure that it was authentic to what we made for the film. And that that became my job about 10, 11 years ago. So we'll get into some of the aspects of, of how you did that. But let me ask first, if you're in charge of all of those entities, how much time do you split among each one of them? And, and what is at the forefront, I guess, of all of those duties right now, whether it is the theme parks or toys or anything else? Well, we, we have teams at Pixar that, that focus solely on consumer products, toys, uh, solely work on theme parks, um, solely work on publishing. And I will just be a touch point or a crave advisor to them when it's a Cars-related Project. So I don't have to be on all of them all the time. It's basically when something comes along and they want my input on it, um, that's what I'm there for. What's the most fascinating piece of each one of those entities that you just said? Because this obviously started as, as a movie and has you know blossomed into so many other things. What have you learned, I guess, along the way that you wouldn't have known before that? Well, I think the, the biggest thing about Cars that was fascinating for me was normally when a film comes out, there's a buzz around a movie, it comes out, there are typically with a Pixar film, there's toys or games or things and it comes out and then maybe there's a DVD release and then it sort of slowly fades off uh, and, and goes down. Cars went the opposite way. Uh, when Cars came out, it did good theatrically, but then the DVD came out and we found that there was all these families and kids that were watching it over and over and over and over, and it kind of got bigger and bigger. And so the consumer products actually went up instead of going down the second year. And we realized it has more playability and watchability um, than any movie I, that I can think of where we hear these stories all the time about people that said, oh, my family and I have watched that movie X number, hundreds of numbers of times. And that's kind of unusual. That's kind of mind blowing for me. Can you believe it's been 15 years? It's weird because I started on it in 2000, actually. I'd been working on Monsters, Inc. And Monsters, Inc. wasn't quite done yet. And they said, hey, we're, we're starting on this project in development about these little cars in this town. They're living cars. We know that you're a car person, you know, a car guy. Would you want to work on this? And I said, yeah, I think it'd be cool. So I left Monsters, Inc. about maybe six months before it came out, you know, I'd finished up in the art department and went on cars before it was even called cars and was there for the very, very earliest days of it. So yeah, 20, 22 years ago, almost for me that I, 21 years 20, ago, that I, when I started 21 for you. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's an interesting story on how you were selected by John Lasseter uh, to be part of, of that adventure. And in fact, even John's story, he wanted to do something about a journey not a destination, and came to that epiphany as a result of taking his four sons and his wife on a motorhome trip across the country, stumbled on Route 66, and was trying to rejuvenate and reconnect with his family following the making of several movies. And that was the, uh, he, he had an epiphany, if you will, for that, uh, the, the inspiration for, for what happened. But he came to you because you were a car guy, right? And all of a sudden, you started answering questions that nobody else could answer. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah. And, John, and, you know, John's a car guy as, as well. Um, he, he knew quite a bit about cars, but I probably have a geeky amount of knowledge about it for various <laughs> reasons. And so I, for whatever reason, I started in the art department, but I ended up managing the character team where we built the characters in the computer. And while I was on that team, I was able to say, you know, actually, you've got the lug pattern wrong for the Hudson Hornet. They have a very narrow bolt pattern or, you know, the Fillmore, the Volkswagen bus, if he's that year, he should have this style turn signal. And that level of authenticity, because you're, you're copying real vehicles, you can't just you can't just fake it. You've got to get those details right, because a car person will know the taillights, the headlights, the sound of the engine, the horn sounds have to be authentic, or it kind of pops you out as a car person to watch those movies when they get the, the details wrong. And you went right down to every specific detail. Uh, the famous story that you've told before is that the roof of of the restaurant was shaped like it, it had spark plugs that, that were on the top in one of the scenes. 
and they were firing at the same rate as a V8 engine. Or, or, I'm sorry, a flat, was it a flat? Flathead V8. So it was Flo's Flathead V8. V8. Yeah, Flo's was called the V8 Cafe. And the the, the basically the, the roof covers that were meant to look like the little drive-in roof covers actually sort of found, kind of formed like flat heads with spark plugs in them. And those spark plugs all lit up and they were just randomly lighting up, the neon was. And John said, what's the firing order of Flathead V8? Told him what it was, knew it off the top of my head. I don't know if I still do. And they they timed that in the firing order of a flathead V8 um, because of that. And it just nerdy little details that most people will never, ever notice, but we did. And we wanted to get it all right. Turn signals that were correct, which yeah. side of the door, which, which side door handles were located on vehicles and engine sounds that were recorded that were that matched the vehicles exactly uh, starters, great, the great starters data. yeah the starter sounds the actual sound of the starter motor as well as the engine as well as the horn um those kind of things we recorded the real cars in every single instance when it was a, a real car versus an in-house design we recorded the real vehicles to get all that right how appropriate that lightning mcqueen's number is 95 you're born on september 5th i mean you had to do the movie Right. Well, and also 95 is the year Toy Story came out. So that's the truth of how we got the 95. But yeah, <laughs> I like right. to take credit for the 95. Sure. You went to the Detroit Auto Show in 2001. Let's go back to, you know, being selected for this, um, uh, for a um, production role in this, in this film in 2001. And you spent a lot of time with manufacturers doing research. You went to the Dodge Viper plant and you really wanted to get it into the Detroit car culture. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, part of us, there was there was a three-pronged approach to the movie Cars. One was Route 66 trips, which the story team all did Route 66 trips to get those stories. And those are very important for the characters in the movie. So one half of it is the character, the other half is the car. Um, the other component was NASCAR. So we went to a number of NASCAR races to, to absorb that culture of the NASCAR racing in the early 2000s. But the last component was the car part, the car culture part. And that's why we did the trips to Detroit um, and visited everything from the old dilapidated Packard plant and walked through that old Packard plant that's almost completely fallen apart now. Yes, we did factory tours, um, Ford, GM, Chrysler. And we also had to pitch the film to all these manufacturers and get them to buy on to be part of the movie as well. There were movies that have been done by Pixar before. You mentioned Monsters, Inc., but also you've done, you've done bugs, you've done toys. Why cars? You know, it's funny because the whole point of animation is it's bringing inanimate objects to life. That's what animation is. And I think at Pixar, they always are looking for these what if stories. We're always thinking about the, the life of these things if they had their own life, you know, monsters hiding under your bed or in your closet, you know, toys that come alive when you leave the room. You could have swore you left that G.I. Joe there, but now he's over there. Um, and I think for cars, we, you know, especially in the U.S., we have such a love affair with the automobile that we name our cars. We, 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 we assign them a gender, either male or female for our cars. Um, <laughs> you know, there's songs about cars. They're so weaved into American car culture and they have such a love, you know, you keep a certain number of photos on your phone. It's typically your kids um, and one of your old cars. You typically don't show people a picture of your house on your phone or, or you know, <laughs> what you... True you know, what, what you wore yesterday, but you sure got pictures of an old car, right? You, you keep those. So, so there is an emotional connection that we have with our vehicles that we don't have with every other object. You see the Instagram uh, shots that are posted of people with their new car at the dealership and very proud of the fact that they've just bought a new car. They don't do that with a pair of shoes usually. That's right. That's right. And especially these days when you have to work so hard to find a new car for sale in the dealership, because they all right. seem to be out right now. It's a big deal. <laughs> exactly true, Jay. You struggled with bringing the vehicles to life initially as you set out to create this, you know, the first films. And they were a little rubbery at first. And it was hard to believe that it was a car and making it into a living character. But you drew inspiration from the 1950s and a very famous illustrator. Tell me that story. Well, you know, what, what we were striving for with making the cars come to life is called truth in materials. And truth in materials means if this thing is metal, right? If a car is made of metal, it can only move so much. It needs to come to life. But if it's too springy, too rubbery, you don't believe that, that it's made of metal anymore. You believe the car is made out of rubber or plastic. So it's also supposed to weigh three, four, five thousand pounds. And so it can't jump way up in the air. All these things, you're trying to kind of suspend the disbelief that this is an automobile that's come to life. And so it has to move like a car does. 
the short you're referring to is Sue the Little Blue Coop, which was a Walt Disney short from 1952 directed by Bill Pete. And that inspired us in a different way. It was Eyes in the Windshield, which that short had the eyes in the windshield of the car. And it probably moved a little too rubbery because it was a 2D flat cartoon, but it had so much life and so much charm. And you had empathy for this little car that we thought if we could just get a little bit of that in our film, we've got something. Well, because historically, uh, cars that had been portrayed in, in, in animation had eyes as headlights, right? That was always the way that it had been done. Yeah, and I think the most famous example is probably the Chevron cars, which are still around today, the, uh, the animation, the uh, stop motion kind of Ardman style animation. And the problem with that was when you put the eyes down below uh, in the headlights, you have the grill, it still could be a nose and you still have a bumper that could be a mouth, but you've restricted the entire face to just the front of the vehicle. It's a little bit like the head of a snake, long body behind. By putting the eyes up in the windshield, but leaving the mouth in the front, you now get the head of a horse or of a dog. So the eyes are set back but the nose and mouth is way forward. And so by opening the face up that much, you can begin to turn it and still see the face at multiple angles with the, with the snake-like face, the uh, you know uh, eyes and the headlights. You don't have to turn very far and the face completely goes away in profile. So we were able to get a lot more acting and life out of them by keeping the eyes up high in the windshield. It did not win the Academy Award that year. Happy Feet won for best animated feature. But as you said, the the noise of the film just kept getting louder and louder and louder as time went on, leading to things like Cars Land, you know, Disney, California. But culturally, what do you think it did? What was its impact? What was the most rewarding thing culturally that you've realized out of the franchise? There's been a couple things. I think one of them is there's been a reconnection of, I think, people with old cars. Um, I, I had a guy come to me and we, we did a talk down at the Peterson Automotive Museum. And this was the year the film came out. So this would probably be in the fall of that year of 2006. And this guy came up to me literally with tears in his eyes. And he said, you know, I've got a Hudson Hornet and uh, I've had it for years. My grandkids never care. They always just wanted to, you know, play games or whatever. But after that movie came out every week and they ask if they can ride uh, in the Doc Hudson car. Doc Hudson. And, yeah. And it literally made an emotional connection for these little kids that otherwise just saw it as an old car now had an emotional connection with the vehicle. That was unexpected. Um, and the other thing was going along Route 66 and seeing how much that movie helped influence some of those businesses that these people who were literally dying on the vine on the mother road had more tourists and more visitors and more recognition of, oh, this, these are the locations that inspired the movie Cars, and it saved some of these businesses from dying, which we, there's no way that, that we expected that would have happened, but that was pretty cool, too. You know, the interstate system would have taken folks away from Route 66, and Cars brought them back to Route 66. You had an interesting story that you had heard uh, related to the Cars franchise, and Joplin, Missouri. What happened at the local Walmart related to Cars and Joplin? Well, it's, it actually wasn't the local Walmart. It's what the local Walmart provided. Um, what okay. was happening was all these little businesses on Route 66 would have kids coming in and asking if they had any car stuff for sale. <laughs> and they didn't have it, right? They sold pies and coffee and, and gasoline. They weren't used to selling toys. And so many enterprising uh, business owners on Route 66 would drive to the local Walmart, buy as many die-cast cars as they could, and then sell them for maybe like a dollar or more in their businesses because the kids wanted to buy the cars on Route 66. They wanted to buy the cars uh, on Lightning McQueen's road. And that again was that emotional connection with the movie. They easily could have drove five miles with a Walmart and bought it there, but they wanted to buy the cars on the road, which I think is great. And those five-year-olds then are now 20 years old now, <laughs> and, they're, and they're still interested in, in the franchise. Let's talk about the, the interesting voices that you had, the racing personalities. I mean, you had Michael Schumacher as a part of this. Uh, you had Mario Andretti. Uh, that must have been a thrill for you. Yeah, there was an homage the whole time that we wanted to make sure to honor those legends and to feature them in the film. And I think the funny thing for them, I, I went to SEMA one year to the big auto um, thing in, in SEMA and I happened to go to a steakhouse and Mario Andretti was sitting across from me, the booth across from me. And I went over and said, hi. And I said, you probably don't remember me. I'm Jay and I worked on cars. And he said, oh yeah, how's it going? We start talking and he said, you know, the craziest thing is these kids come up and ask me to autograph that Mario Andretti diecast all the time. And he said, they don't know I raced in Formula One. They don't know that I raced in NASCAR. They, don't, they couldn't tell you a single thing I did, but they know I was this character in cars and they asked me to sign their diecast. 
And I think for him and for Richard Petty and for a lot of these older generation racers, it, it gave them a new, um, maybe new relevance with, with these kids that wanted them to sign the diecast because they're part of the movie, which is really cool. Is there any driver who you wanted to have in the film that you didn't? Uh, you know, I wasn't in charge of, of, of voice talent per se. That's probably a question for somebody in casting, but, um, you know, obviously we were a little too late to have Ayrton Senna. It would have been cool to have mm. somebody like him in there. Um, but then again, it was a very American movie too. You know, we were lucky enough in Cars 3 that we got Junior Johnson to record before he passed away. So we got to feature him as a legend. Um, we, we've had some pretty, pretty cool people and also around the world, different people voice these characters. So Sebastian Vettel did a voice of one of the characters in Germany. Mika Hakkinen did a voice mm. for one of the movies in Finland. So it's, it's really cool. It, it does kind of keep going and expanding around the world with these, with these racing legends. I know one of your mottos is that um, you have to have a great story. If you don't have a great story, you don't have a film. And you've, and in a way, you try to appeal to everyone, uh, all ages, uh, with this story. But you have a great story, too. Your dad was in the automotive business. He was a wholesaler. And you spent a lot of time around cars growing up. Tell me a little bit about that. Your, yeah. your, your time in Riverside, Missouri. Yeah, actually, you know, my mom and dad divorced when I was pretty young and I moved out with my mom to California, but my dad stayed in uh, Kansas City or a suburb of Kansas City and he had a shop in Riverside, Missouri called Ward Automotive. And what he would do is buy cars and he would fix them up and sell them for more auto wholesale, very simple, just flipping cars. It's what he loved to do. And it's what I still love to do myself. And I remember distinctly many times just going around with him as a kid and going to look at cars to buy or going to auctions with him and buying cars and bringing them back to a shop. And he would detail them and do all that stuff in the shop. And I'd sit in the front, he had a, you know, the old blotter style calendars you'd have on your desk. He had a Coke machine and I'd crack open a cold Coke and just draw a car sitting at that front desk all day while he'd be wheeling and detailing in the back. Amazing. And your love of, um, of cars led you into, um, well, even just drawing led you to the California college of arts and crafts in Oakland. But more, more importantly than that, you were an all-around car and motorcycle guy and a real hot rodder. You launched something called Billetproof, the Billetproof series of car shows with a guy named Kirk Jones back in the late 90s. Tell me about that. Yeah, I really got into traditional hot rodding, as in hot rods as they were built in the 50s um, as a young guy. There was something to me that I loved about the post-war American hot rod and custom scene that was so pure and the cars were so beautiful. <clears throat> and what was happening by the 90s was that had kind of become passe and hot rods become pastel colors and billet wheels and huge wide tires and almost caricatures uh, of what they were supposed to be. And uh, I built my own little primered hot rod I would drive around and kind of got looked down upon when we would go to a big show, like a good guy's show back then. And so my friend and I said, well, what, what if we started our own show and really made it about the low buck cars uh, that people built themselves? that were built in their garage the way hot rods used to be built. And you didn't have to have a trailer. You didn't have to have a million dollars. It was just about finding an old Model A and souping it up and chopping it down and driving it. And so we started the show in 1997. We had um, 26 cars the first year. We went to 97, 98 cars the second year to 130, to 300, to 500. And it just kept going wow. on and on and it became massive. And it actually became this sort of movement that happened of people getting back into traditional hot rods and also not being what we called a trailer queen, actually building it and driving it and making it more about driving the cars. Your first car was actually a, a really old car, a 49 Lincoln Cosmopolitan coupe, right? Yeah, not that wasn't my first car, but that was the first car that I customized. I really wanted a Merc. Your first but I, old car, right? Yeah, my first old car that I customized. I, I had old cars in high school, but they weren't that old. But I wanted a... I wanted a 49 Merc and I, you know, it was just out of my price range. I, I remember even in, in college at art school, I told a, a girl that I was looking for an old car to fix up. And she said, oh, my friend has an old car. And it was a 70 uh, Buick electric convertible, not old, not old, like I wanted, but I ended up buying it because it was such a good deal. And I drove that for a few years, but I really wanted a 40, 40s or 50s era car to customize. And this 49 Lincoln Cosmopolitan Coupe is a massive car. It's a two-door, but it's a massive two-door car. And this guy had it in San Francisco for incredibly cheap because the whole body was potted. All the, all the chrome had been pitted. It was a nice running original 49 Lincoln that was just 
all the bright work, all the paint, it was all shot and he couldn't get anybody to buy it. And this is, you know, again, a long time ago. So I bought it, drove it into San Francisco. It had this huge 337 cubic inch flathead that smoked, you know, like the rings were shot and uh, <laughs> proceeded to, uh, to customize it slowly over the years, chopped it, hard topped it, lowered it, did a 54 DeSoto grill, uh, really made the car pretty cool and unique. And you loved, I mean, growing up, some of your biggest influences were the, the GM stuff from the 50s, right? I mean, you loved the great designers, Harley Earl, Bill Mitchell, great automotive design. I know that was some of, those were some of your larger influences. Is that right, Jay? Yeah, I mean, from, from who made cars in Detroit, those guys were amazing. But I also love the stuff that George Barris was doing for customizing or the Yala Brothers or uh, Valley Customs, Neil Emery. Those guys were doing, or Gene Winfield, those guys were doing stuff in metal in the early 50s that was cleaner and sometimes more advanced than what Detroit was doing. Detroit almost had to catch up to what the car customizers were doing post-war. Would you have been an auto industry guy if you weren't a guy working at an animation studio? Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I thought about transportation design. I remember I wrote a letter to GM when I was in grade school about being a car designer, and they sent this very patent brochure back about what it's like. Unfortunately, car design in that era was not very good looking. I mean, cars were pretty, new cars were pretty <laughs> but ugly. And um, it, it just never, it never sunk for me to go into designing new cars because they just were not very exciting in that era. I got more excited about cars from the 50s and the 60s than modern cars for a long time. You collect a lot of old cars. So what do you have now? Well, I guess collect it in a way. I, I had to sell that 49 Lincoln a number of years ago and I bought a 39 Mercury convertible that's done in what's called Westergaard style, which is a early kind of pre-war custom or tail dragger, they would call it. It's got Lincoln Zephyr bumpers, 41 studio taillights. It's lowered in the back with skirts. Um, I've got a 29 Model A Roadster with a Cadillac 331 engine in it, the early overhead valve caddy that I've driven to Bonneville and back. Um, and then I've got a 57 Pontiac Safari wagon, which is a two-door wagon, kind of like a Nomad. It's kind of like the Nomad's bigger brother. And I've got one of those. And then about uh, four years ago, I picked up a very different car. I picked up a 76 911S that belonged to my neighbor and I helped her fix it up and she was going to sell it. And so I persuaded her to sell it to me instead of you know, letting it go away. And I ended up really loving that car. You mentioned Bonneville. So tell me about your Bonneville experience for the listeners out there who are not as aware. Why did you want to go to Bonneville? I think for anybody who's into hot riding, anybody who's into cars, you have to, you literally have to go to Bonneville at least once in your life. It's really hard to explain until you've been, I don't know if you've ever gone. No, I haven't. No, it's honestly, it's bucket list stuff. And once you go, you'll understand it's 750 miles from here. And I wanted to go there. And the first time I went, I just went in an old truck and followed some hot rods out there. And I said, I've got to come back in my hot rod next year. I have to come in my roadster. And I did the second year. 750 miles each way, no top, no windows. And uh, when you get there, it's a pure- These are the salt flats now. It, it's salt flats, yeah. And it's right. literally outside of Salt Lake City. It's Salt just Lake across City. the border from Nevada. And uh, it's the most beautiful place on earth. It's smooth and flat. It goes on for miles. The hills look like they're two miles away, but they're probably 20 miles away. Um, it's, it's warm, but it's cool to the touch because of the salt surface. And the racing at Bonneville, everybody has this camaraderie. I, I don't know what it is, but people all help each other out. It's, it's a unique form of racing because it's really you against a record. It's not you against other people necessarily. And I'll say I've seen people from literally around the world, Germany, New Zealand, Japan, South America, France, you, you name it. There's people there that get it and, and want to be part of it. If you've ever seen World's Fastest Indian, I think that movie really sums up the spirit of Bonneville in a lot of ways. So what happened on your trip to Bonneville? Well, I've been probably seven or eight times now, but no, the first time, uh, the first time was, um, I went, well, the, actually the, 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 the exciting time really to talk about, I think is the second time. Cause that's when I drove the roadster there and I, I cajoled a buddy to go with me in the roadster. And again, it has a school bus seat. That's got about an inch and a half of foam. We get in the car and we drove all the way out to a little town called Austin, Nevada. It's a ghost town. And there's bottles on the street that are a hundred years old. And we camped out under the stars and there was, you know, scorpions on the ground and coyotes howling. And then the next morning we drove into Bonneville as the sun rose and you just see it for the first time in an old car and a hot rod and you go, this is kind of paradise on earth. It's just, it's just amazing. It's hard to explain. It's so cool. After the break, I'll continue my conversation with Cars Creative Director, Jay Ward. 
The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back into Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. Now, back to my interview with Cars Creative Director, Jay Ward. You have a special connection with uh, a gentleman who's been on this show, uh, Bruce Meyer, and your father. Yes. And uh, you had a request for Mr. Meyer, the ultra California collector. Yes. Um, you also had a very close relationship with your own father, um, that that auto wholesaler that, that he was. Yeah. And... Um, and how does that relate to Bonneville? What did, what did you ask Bruce to do? Yeah, so that that happened. Uh, so my, my father passed away uh, in 2012. He died of pancreatic cancer. And I got his ashes after his, uh, after his service. And I said, I really want to do something with these ashes. I don't want him just to sit on the shelf. My dad was a dynamic guy. He never sat still. He never <laughs> stopped moving. And so I went to Pebble Beach and I spread some of his ashes at Pebble Beach because um, he had a car that had been there before. And it's one of the events that we love to go to together was the Concourse d'Elegance. And then Bonneville always usually falls about a week after Pebble Beach. So I flew out to uh, Bonneville and I had some more of my dad's ashes with me. And Bruce happened to be going that year and he was running a roadster looking to run around 200 miles an hour. He wanted to get in the 200 mile an hour club, which for those who don't know, when you go over 200 miles an hour, you get a special cap, 200 mile an hour cap. It's a red cap. So Bruce wanted to get his cap. And I was talking to him about the car and, and, and checking it out. And I had some of my dad's ashes with me. And I said, you know, Bruce, I, I, if, if this is possible, I don't know if it is. Is there any way that I could have you let some of my dad's ashes go from the back of your car to spread them? Because I was just going to go to the Bonneville Salt and sort of shake them around. And he said, I think that's a cool idea. And so they were getting the chute ready. And for those of you who don't know, when your car goes over 175 Bonneville, you have to run a chute. And it's a parachute on the back of the car. And there's two parts of it. There's a smaller one, a primer chute that pops out. It's a little mini chute. And then that pulls the bigger chute out. And then that one opens and really slows your car down significantly. So the chute has to be folded in a very methodical way so that when you pop it, it opens correctly. Otherwise, you're not going to slow down. So they were packing the chute and we found the perfect place and we put the ashes in there. And you're not supposed to do this. I imagine you probably could get in trouble for releasing some of these ashes at Bonneville. But Bruce is the kind of guy who's like, let's do it. This is a great idea. So we packed the ashes in the chute and he happened to have a GoPro on the car front and back. So when he pulls a chute, and I think he's going about 170, 580, he was still getting up to speed. There they go with the chute. And it's the most wow. cool thing. And then Bruce being the ultimate gentleman, amazing car guy, giving guy that he is, he grabbed that little primer part of the parachute, the little small spring pack, and he wrote a letter to my dad and gave that to me. Wow. What a story. Yeah. Really cool. Your dad must've been really proud of your effort with the cars franchise. He was, and it's kind of sad because he passed away. Like I said, uh, it was May of 12 and a month later we opened cars land, uh, oh. which he never got to see, which he would have mm. loved. Uh, three years later, I became a judge at Pebble Beach. He never got to see that. That would have blown his mind. Um, I, I think, you know, he got to see a lot of great stuff and he loved Pixar. He loved coming to visit me there, but there's so much more that happened after he passed. But I'm grateful. I think like we all are for the influence a lot of times that a, that a father can have on us with the things we love for sure. Jay, how do you see car culture evolving over the course of the next decade? You've been, you've been so you've been so close to all elements of car culture, especially as you just mentioned. You, you know the judging role that you have at Pebble Beach. How is it going to change? It's changing right now. I mean, when you go to a Concourse d'Elegance, there's obviously a lot of uh, you know older folks there that have been in the car scene for a long time. Gentlemen who have collected cars for the last 40, 50 years. These guys are now in their 70s and 80s, and they're not going to be around forever. And you also find a lot of times they have kids who don't care about cars, you know, sometimes that second generation doesn't like what their parents liked and that's okay. But where do those cars go? Who keeps bringing the 1927 Stutz or Packard or Duesenberg to Pebble Beach? And um, luckily there's a couple things happening that are positive. One is I think, you know, uh, Haggerty uh, Car Insurance has really gotten involved with the aspect of how do you engage younger people 
to care about cars, uh, whether it be learning how to drive a stick shift, attending a concourse for the first time, uh, that's important. Uh, also, opening up the idea of what a classic car is. I, I helped judge at the Audrain Concours, and they had a 30 under 30 class. You had to be under 30 years old and spend less than $30,000 on your car. <laughs> that's not typically something you see at Concourse d'Elegance, but they're starting <laughs> to, yeah, it's great, right? Right. They're finding this way to engage a younger generation to care. You know, I, I think there is hope for the future. You're also seeing a change of what's classic now is a car from the 80s and 90s, which I, you know, you or I might go, well, it's not really a classic yet, but it is to some people, to a younger generation. And so how do you invite those cars and that cult, car culture in as well? I know plenty of teenagers who get very excited about cars from the early nineties. And I think that's very strange. <laughs> yes. If you've ever heard of Radwood, just, you can see that celebration of that era. Yeah. How about the fact that we're going to an electrified era? I'm asking the hot rod guy, what do you thinks of electrification? What do you think? Well, it's funny. A few years ago, I'd say, I want everybody to go electric because that means more gas for me, for all my old cars. That means we'll run out slower. Um, you know, but but the truth is, you know, we at someday are, you know, running out of petroleum. I don't know how much longer we'll be able to produce the amount that we do, right? There's a, there's a finite amount of dinosaur stuff in the ground to actually use for these things. I, I'm excited about electrification, but my only concern is, it seems like all those eggs are just going into that one basket with many manufacturers. They're pure EV, nothing else. That's it. I know hydrogen kind of had a little go and that seems to have faded and come and gone, but we have millions and millions of internal combustion ice cars left on the road. And those cars don't just go away immediately. Those cars are going to be the means of transportation for a lot of people who can't afford to go out and buy a new EV for a long time. Uh, I know that Porsche is working on a synthetic fuel, and I know Formula One is also working on a synthetic fuel. And I think, yeah, let's let's go EV, but let's not neglect a hundred years of automotive advances. If this car, if the only problem with this ICE car is what comes out of the tailpipe, if we could fix that, that it wasn't making hydrocarbons and we weren't using some petroleum out of the ground, we weren't using you know fossil fuel. If we found a clean renewable energy source that made a clean tailpipe emission, but use the same basic engine, why not do that for all those cars? If that means all those, including classic cars, could stay on the road for another 100 years, it seems like a good idea to me. And what are your thoughts on the idea of a more autonomous future? You Hands know, off the wheel. Yeah, and, and that's coming too, right? What, what I think the smart, the smart ticket for that is an engagement at the level you want it to be. So for instance, not everybody wants to sit there and go to sleep in the car. Some people enjoy the experience of driving. Some people um, are already doing that right now. Yeah. <laughs> <Plenty> <laughs> Just of guys look sitting, at YouTube. <laughs> yeah, sitting in the back of their Tesla while it drives them down the road. Uh, there was an Audi concept this year at Pebble Beach that had two modes. It had a, I want to drive it mode, and then a, it drives itself mode. And the steering wheel and the controls literally folded under the dash and the seat laid down for like sleep mode. And then you could go back to driving again. It's probably not a fully baked idea, but the idea behind it is cool, is that there may be times when it's late at night and I'm tired or you know whatever, and I'm not able to drive to have that car get me home safe. That's great. But there's also times when I want to drive and engage. You know, Right now we have passive safety where if you're not paying attention, the car will break for you. That's probably a good thing, especially when you look in your rear view mirror and somebody's coming towards you texting on their phone and it stops for them. Mm -hmm. that's, that's good technology. Um, I just think, you know, there's still some things to be worked out with an autonomous future when the car is making that decision. There's some moral dilemmas that the car is going to have to figure out. And, and I don't think that's quite there yet. When we look at the movie industry over the course of the last um, number of decades, and we think of films like Blade Runner or Tron, there was always this futuristic view of what travel was going to be like in something that had wheels. Has the movie industry been accurately ahead of itself? And if so, where, where will we be in 2030, 35, or 40 based on what the movie industry develops? Yeah, there's been some good stuff in the movies. I think Minority Report had a lot of things yeah. that, that was pretty accurate. Minority Report was one that, that got it right. Peterson Museum actually has that vehicle and um, the uh, Minority Report vehicle. When you look at it, you go, okay, well, that's, I, I can see how that's real. Yeah, even there was a whole uh, haptic and, and a touchscreen thing where he was moving things. All that mm -hmm. seems very plausible. It's they whoever they hired for the futurist did a good job. 
Um, I think other films with flying cars, people do a terrible job driving on a road. I, I, those same people <laughs> are flying above, it sounds like a train wreck to me, uh, or I should say a plane wreck to me. Um, so, you know, I don't know. The, the tricky thing is, is you have more and more people moving into cities, into dense cities, um, and, and not everybody's going to be able to have their own vehicle. We're going to get to this point where cars are not really allowed in certain city areas. We're already starting to see cars banned on certain streets and those things. So a lot of solutions have to be figured out for people that live far away that need a vehicle to get into a city. For people in a city, you know, there's this whole idea of a, an autonomous car that you only use for the hours you use it. But now coming, we thought that was two years ago, we said, oh, that's great, car sharing, right? And then COVID hit and people said, I don't want to share a car with anybody. Right. Right. So we still have a lot of things we've got to figure out with what makes sense for the future of transportation. But I know we need to get from point A to point B. And sometimes it's really convenient to have something waiting for you. You can just get in and go and not wait. As an artist, I know you've, you've seen the return of several nostalgic features of vehicles that would have, you know, that that slipped away and then it comes back and it's popular and it has a certain appeal with a younger demographic. Is the appeal of vintage cars that nostalgia or is it more intriguing or, or were they just designed better? You know, was it an intriguing design? I would say design is a big part of it because, because of safety and impact standards and emission standards, cars had to change. You know, you can't have 59 Cadillac tail fins stabbing somebody anymore. You, you can't have, you know, loads and loads of chrome that make a car heavy or less, you know, aerodynamic. All those things had to be cleaned up for a lot of reasons, mainly because of safety and, and engineering standards. So, you know, the, in the old days, a car was designed for looks first, and then all those other things were sort of crammed in. And now it's the other way around. They are starting with a set number of points and they can't push and pull those points too much. They have to meet a certain standard for pedestrian safety and impact standards, and they can only do so much in that box. It's just mind boggling to me that there was an era when, when America would come out with a totally different retooled brand new car year after year after year, and the engines would change and the transmissions would change and the interiors would change and, the, and everything. And now a car has to have a five, six year cycle before it becomes economically viable. It's just, just a different thing. I don't know if I answered your question, but I think you yep. look at those old cars when the design was totally inspired by either aircraft or space flight, and it was selling a dream, right? It was. Now, they're, now they're selling what's safest or gets the best fuel mileage, but it used to be really about selling a dream. Totally aspirational. Yeah, exactly right. This is the show Cars and Culture, but I want to talk about motorcycles and culture for a second, because I know you're a huge motorcycle guy. I think you, you still ride a motorcycle as your daily driver, don't you? Yeah, I for many years I just had a motorcycle to get around, no car, and that was mainly because being a a poor kid in art school, I I didn't have the uh, the, the funds for a car, but I was always able to ride a motorcycle. And I'm just a big motorcycle gearhead. I, I worked at Harley Davidson for a while when I got out of college, and I still have a Triumph Thruxton that I ride today. So yeah, motorcycles are there, big part of me. And you have a dream that you've been working on for more than a decade now, which is to produce a movie or a a movie that you want to be a part of. And it's all about something that, Jay, I didn't know anything about, motorcycle board track racing. And for those who don't know, it was really popular in the United States during the 1910s and 20s. So we're talking 100 years ago. That's right. And you would have some race facilities that would draw crowds of 80,000 people. Um, in, in fact, one year, 1915, 80,000 fans we're in Chicago to watch a, a race three weeks after only 60,000 people had attended the Indianapolis 500. <laughs> yeah, it was one of the largest motorized spectator sports or largest spectator sports bar none in the United States. It had a massive uh, love and yet you barely hear about it anymore. And you're right, it started around 1910 and it really hit its peak in the early 20s, about 100 years ago. And then by 1930, it was completely gone, just erased and there had never been a feature film about board track racing before it's been featured in small things there was a harley davidson tv series called harley and or harley and the davisons but there had never really been a film that had board track racing as a backdrop and i thought it's possibly the most visceral exciting unique yeah. it's like gladiator on two wheels yeah and i thought man this is just ripe to be part of a film somehow and so i wrote this idea 
about 10 years ago, thought, a bit, thought about it as a family film, as a live action family film, a father-daughter story, and began to develop it. And it's now finally starting to take roots and it looks like we're moving forward with it. It took a long time, but uh, it's, it's getting closer. So these facilities were called motor drones and there it's almost like velodromes in a way, correct? Right. Um, and in fact, there was one that was even up until the forties was in the Bronx, uh, Castle Hill Speedway. Uh, which ran midgets into the 1940s. Why was this story interesting for you? Well, it, it's a couple things. One was these tracks were made out of wood because the technology wasn't there for a paved asphalt paved oval at that point, right? The technology was how do you get lower friction to be able to go faster? And a slick wood board was the easiest way to do it, to build a wooden smooth track. And it did come from bicycle velodromes, right? That you bank the track so that as you go around a corner, you don't have to slow down. You can keep it wide open to bank around a corner. And motorcycles were doing 120 miles an hour in the teens on, wow. on, on essentially bicycle tires. Like imagine 120 miles an hour on a bicycle with <laughs> no brakes. These bikes had no brakes, no clutch, no way to disengage the motor except for a very small kill button on your handlebar. It was akin to pulling a spark plug wire to slow yourself down. So you could only basically engine brake to come to a stop. So imagine 120 miles an hour, slick wood boards. These bikes had a constant loss oil system. So oil was coming out of the back of the bike onto the wood boards. You were covered in a thin layer of oil on your skinny bicycle tires going 120 miles an hour with no brakes. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah, and in the late 1920s, there were 24 board tracks built around the country. Of course, you know all this already. And, um, and then, as you say, they were gone. Expensive yeah. to maintain, various other factors, Great Depression influenced a lot of that. Yeah, people thought it was because the bikes were too dangerous. Like, oh, they're, they're all shut down. They called them murder drums because these people got killed. And they did get killed very regularly on them. You could see why. But it actually was not the deaths. People loved the sport. It really was the expense of maintaining a bare wooden track. They didn't, did tend to start falling apart after a while or catching on fire from a lightning strike or a, a kid with some matches. Um, and they realized racing on dirt was heck of a lot cheaper and flat and the bikes. That's what the birth of flat tracking came out of the board track era into the flat track era. Mm. So you go into production next year. That's the hope right now. We, you know, we have a script, uh, a really great script that we love and I've got a production company we're working with. So we're starting to put everything together right now. We've done some location scouting, but, uh, it's looking, looking positive. It's pretty good. And some good conversations with the manufacturers who uh, built these bikes back in the day, you know, Indian and Harley and Excelsior was another big one. Uh, all used to battle it out on the weekends on these tracks. And it really made these guys into legends like rock stars overnight. You are a Concord judge, as you mentioned earlier at Pebble beach, Amelia Hilton head. What does, what does that experience do for you? Why do you like being a judge? Uh, you know, I, I, I never thought about judging at a concours when I was growing up, I didn't have a ton of money. I never thought of myself as a concours d'elegance kind of guy. You know, I always thought of those people as like Thurston Howell the third with the little skipper cat <laughs> on and the, you know, the ascot calling their wife lovey. And, um, I just didn't know that much about the world. And right across from Pixar is a place called fantasy junction that does high end European car sales, Bruce Trinnery and team. They do amazing stuff. And Bruce called me one day and he said, I got a couple of guys here that wanted to come over and see Pixar. Would, would you be willing to walk them around? Now we're a closed studio. We're not open to the public. And typically I would say, Hey, I'm too busy. I, I, I don't do tours, but Bruce at fancy junction, he calls, I'll, I'll do it. And um, it was Bill Warner who ran the Amelia Island Concord and his wife. Mm -hmm. And um, I started walking around and I had no idea who Bill Warner was. I had never been to the Amelia Island Concord. I'd been to Pebble beach because of, you know, working on cars research, but that was it. And Bill and I started talking and he owned the Etzel Ford Speedster, which is a car I love. And um, he said, I've got a die cast of it. I'll send it to you. And we started talking. He said, well, what's your favorite car? And I pulled out my phone. And I said, well, I've got my top 50 American and my top 50 European. And he said, whoa, whoa, hold on. <laughs> He's like, you're really a car guy. And I said, no, a hundred percent. Like I'm, you know, yes, I work in the animation industry, but I really love cars. And he said, have you ever judged a Concours? I said, hmm. no, I haven't. And he said, I'd like for you to join me at Amelia Island. It's coming up in, in March. And I said, okay, sure. And I literally thought he was just being a nice guy, but Bill Warner is one of these guys when he says it, it, it happens. And so his assistant called me a week later and said, Mr. Warner said, you'll be judge, joining us to judge next year. And I said, uh, yeah. And it started with that, with Amelia Island. I learned, I got to judge along with Hurley Haywood, like, you know, 
amazing racing legend as my co-judge. And um, Grant Larson, who's the designer from the Porsche Boxster 996-997 series as a co-judge. And, and that experience blew my mind. Now, the cars were amazing. You know, judging them was a skill I had to learn. But honestly, the mind-blowing thing for me is who you're judging with. The, the, it's literally, you know, the who's who of the race. Automotive royalty. Oh, automotive yeah. royalty. My mm. first year at Pebble Beach, I walked into the judges room and Tom Tajarda was sitting right next to me. This is the guy who designed the Ferrari 330, the Fiat 124, the, the, the Pantera. Like this guy is a legend. In fact, he died a year later, but just sitting there and talking with him. His dad designed the Lincoln Zephyr mm -hmm. and it's just mind blowing, right? And there's Jackie X over there and there's Hans Stuck over there. And there's, you know, they're there. They're all in the room, just hanging out, sipping coffee in the judges meeting. Well, different pharma cars and coffee for sure. Yeah. <laughs> your, your whole family is involved um, in your own car passion, your son, your daughter, your wife, Trish. They all love vehicles as well. Yeah, I think they probably haven't had much of a choice. Uh, but, you know, it's funny when my wife and I were dating, I had a 56 Ford truck uh, that had white wall, big and little white walls on it. I picked her up and I remember I stayed up late the night before and put lap belts in it. So she would have a seatbelt in the truck and took her on a date. And, uh, you know, she knew I was a gearhead at that point, for sure. And uh, luckily, she loves it, too, and really gets it and loves being part of it. And my kids have just grown up with it. You know, that 57 Pontiac Safari is how I took my kids to school for years. And just it's wow. normal to them. And Trish is an exceptional makeup artist, I hear, who does a lot for the movie industry, celebrities. She's had some interesting people in her chair, hasn't she? Any car-related individuals? Oh, plenty of car-related individuals. You know, she's done... Uh, hair and makeup for, you know, a lot of people, yes, celebrity people, but also car people as well. And she has a great skill with uh, older people too, just like speaking with seniors or these legendary car guys. They like my wife more than they like talking to me. You know, <laughs> we were in the pits one year at, uh, at Coda for Formula One in Austin, which is coming up. And um, at that point, Nikki Lauda was still alive and Rush had come out and she'd saw that movie and she really got to know him in a different way from watching the movie. And she geeked out on Nikki Lauda, which, you know, that's cool. And so she went up and she was almost kind of shaky and, and she said, uh, you know, could I take a picture with you? And Nikki Lauda, I, I could have been a, a, a just dirt, but he was so enamored with my wife who loved him that he pulled her in and I took a picture of the two of them together. And he was, I guess he was moved at the fact that she was so emotional about meeting him and really recognized what a legend he was where maybe a few years earlier, she may not have. And that was really special to me that that race was important to her as it was to me in a different way that she made that emotional connection. So that was cool. Wonderful. What's next for the Cars franchise? Well, we have a series coming out next year on Disney Plus. I'm sure you've heard of Disney Plus. That's done really well for us. It's called Cars on the Road. And it's Mater McQueen doing a cross-country road trip. So you'll see uh, a lot of great stuff you love from the world of cars, plenty of Mater McQueen. And uh, we're, we're excited about it. It's, it's fun to sort of get back on the highway with cars again. Uh, it's a beloved thing that people have been waiting for content since Cars 3. And so we're finally happy to have something for them. So we're excited. In the 15th year of its uh, at least the theatrical release and 21 years for you, Jay. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. It is the dream continues. <laughs> it's still on the road after all these years. Yeah, <laughs> hasn't broke down yet. Uh, wonderful. Thanks for being on Cars and Culture. I really appreciate it, and I know our listeners do too. Now it's been a real pleasure, real fun talking to you today, and uh, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks again to Cars Creative Director Jay Ward, and thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. We'll see you down the road.